My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and I just want to welcome you to our first first Wednesday of 2015. So thanks for coming. Um, did I hear a few boos from over here? Is, is that my wife booing over there? No. Uh, well, welcome, uh, everyone. It is good to be here. Um, if this is your first time at First Wednesday, what this is, is this is our monthly gathering, meeting at the first Wednesday of most months, where we come together to reflect on important cultural topics through the lens of the gospel story. Uh, you see the paintings behind me of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. These make up the, the major acts of the biblical drama, which for us is a lens through which we see all of life. And so every time, every, every event that we have for First Wednesday, we have a different topic and different speakers and different panelists. We've covered sports and politics and food and creativity. And today we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Is my, my, the favorite aspect of my job is talking about vocation, work, calling, what am I supposed to do with my life? For these eight, nine, some of you ten, some of you three hours a day that you work, um, it's where we spend most of our time, and this is the, the, the context in which we love our neighbors and glorify God and do most of our life. If we are not intentional about this area, then we're losing a lot of other areas. This is something that's relevant to everybody. Now, before we launch into things tonight, let me just give you an overview. We have um, an excellent speaker, someone who I really respect, Bethany Jenkins, who's coming to speak to us tonight. She's coming to, uh, to us from New York City. Now, we've got to give her some grace because she's from New York City, and I think she thinks it's kind of like the, the boondocks out here. She asked me if we had internet in Arizona earlier, so give her some grace, give her some grace. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding, but not kidding. Uh, she's she's a, a great speaker. We'll also have a panel up here uh, with people from various fields that we'll be able to ask questions to about calling, work, the, the ethical struggles that we have as we try to glorify God with the work of our hands. Um, let me announce a few things, share a few things. First of all, I lost my book on the way. Um, I'm going to promote a book. Somebody back there, hold up the book that I left. Right there, that's Visions of Vocation by Stephen Garber. That is one of the best books I know on this topic. Frankly, it should be probably the second book you read after Every Good Endeavor, but that is my favorite book, hands down, about vocation. And we are selling that in the back. Um, not only are we selling it, but we're going to do a little contest to give five of those books away. Here's the contest. Basically, we want you to get on social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, if they've created a new one since I've been on stage, whatever that one is. And we want you to affirm the work of someone that you know, a friend, probably someone outside of the church, maybe doesn't know Christ or inside the church, but, but write a statement just affirming the good work that they do and use the hashtag uh, 1W, and we will troll the internet and look for those things. And our five favorite statements of affirming someone's work, we will give you that book 
visions of vocation. So be sure to do that. Um, before Bethany comes up, I want to just make a statement about some theological groundwork that we just, some statements, some theological assumptions that we have coming into tonight that I will not flesh out in any way, but we will have a class coming up on vocation and calling and, uh, and rest uh, coming up in a few weeks, and we will flesh those things out. But I at least wanted to make these statements as sort of an undergirding theology behind what we're saying tonight. So just 10, 10 statements that are the assumptions behind what we do. And before that, I want to actually define how we're thinking about work tonight. So the definition of work that we are working with is work includes any activity, paid or unpaid, that cultivates blessing and benefits the world. So in other words, um, a stay-at-home mom, that's work. You, it's not employment, but it's work. Um, an accountant, that is work. Um, the, the, being a father and a mother, that is work. Caring for your space, it's, it is work. Uh, also, you could be employed, but it doesn't actually cultivate a lot of blessing or benefit to the world. Um, and that might not be work in the robust biblical sense, but it's employment. Feel free to ask a question about that to flesh that out. But let me give these 10 theological assumptions that are undergirding what we do. Number one, God is a worker. God is the great architect, the, 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 the artist, the janitor, the author who worked before we ever thought about working. He is the one whose work is ultimate, and we are reflecting his image when we work. Number two, we are called and created to work. Before sin even entered in, into the world, humans were created to work. It's not a part of the curse. The struggle and the pain of it is, but we were created and called to work. Number three, work is so good that we will be tempted to worship it and be enslaved by it. We will be tempted to make it the center of our life and it will enslave us and crush us because of sin in the world. N number four, uh, we either reflect or distort God's image through our work. The hours each day that we spend working are image-bearing or image-distorting hours. Number five, work is the means of pushing against the effects of the fall. We see many broken things that come because of sin in the world, and through our work, we're able to push against those things. Think of the work of a doctor. Uh, uh, a disease is an effect of the fall, but the doctor pushes against that. Number six, the work of Christ, not our works, reconciles us to God and renews our work. So above our work is the work of Christ, which puts us in the right place and restores us to be workers and to uh, walk with God in that. Um, number seven, the work is pr the primary way we love and serve our neighbors. Work number eight, or number eight, <laughs> work is the means through which God provides for us. Think about this right now. Your daily bread, or let's just say for tonight, your daily cinnamon rolls. You pray for that, for God to provide. And how did God provide? He didn't magically make chili and cinnamon rolls appear. 
But Rochelle, before you ever got here, like she does every first Wednesday, worked very hard at making that, and God used her work to provide for your sustenance tonight. We should probably give her a hand, right? Um, Number nine, work is the primary place where the church interacts with the world, the scattered church, all of us, the main place where we interact with the world, where they get to see and encounter followers of Christ is through our vocations and occupations. And number 10, work is, is an eternal gift. We will work for all of eternity. It is a gift that will be a part of the new creation. So those are 10 things, theological statements. I just want you to know that those undergird what we're doing, feel free to ask questions about them, and we will unpack them in our upcoming class. And just to give you information about that class, it's called Vocation, Calling, and Theology of Work. It'll be on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. Um, in the Kuiper classroom. I just decided to name it the Kuiper classroom this moment right now. But it's the one with the mural of the, with the, John, uh, or the Abraham Kuiper quote. So straight across there. I just took some authority and named a classroom, but if you're with me on my side, we can, we can make this happen. So, um, so it'll be 11.30 in, uh, on Sunday mornings, February 15th through March 15th, and this is really going to be a class where you can reflect on the work you do and really journal and pray and have people speak into you. Uh, if you're thinking about making career decisions, if you're wondering what is the value of your specific uh, job... Uh, please come to that class. You can actually sign up for that class on the papers that we've put on the table, um, on each of the tables here in the room. So go ahead and sign up for that if you're interested in that. Um, And then finally, the last thing I wanted to announce is the vocation collectives. We've been doing something called vocation collectives. I'll mention it toward the end of the night. But basically, we're gathering people in similar fields together to help do some theological reflection, to get to know each other, to pray for one another. Um, In February, we have the Medical Collective coming up. Um, In March, we have the STEM Collective, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, In April, we have agriculture and so on and so forth. So if you're interested in those, contact me. We'll be putting stuff out on the city about those things. And that's all I have in the way of announcements. Now it's, the turn, it's your turn to talk. So let me go ahead and ask a question to you. When you think of God, what, what of those ten assumptions that we have, we'll throw some of them back up there, what of those ten things inspire and motivate your work most? What is it about God and the Bible and, and, and the gospel that inspires you and drives you to work well and work for his glory? So that wasn't a very clear question, but go ahead and figure it out anyway. Okay. Well, it seems like despite my ambiguous question, you were able to find something to talk about. Probably had something to do with how the It was kind of nice to see the Seahawks lose the Super Bowl. I'm just saying. Uh, Actually, Seahawks fans, I I have a lot of compassion for you after that game. So our speaker for tonight is Bethany Jenkins. Um, it It is a gift for us to have Bethany here speaking to us. Um... Let me tell you a little bit about how I originally encountered Bethany. 
See, I am a pretty avid reader of the Gospel Coalition website. And for years, I've thought, what's on this website is awesome, but, but there's nothing about faith and work, about vocation, about a lot of the cultural topics. And, and there were a few articles, but there wasn't a lot. And then all of a sudden, I saw it just, they just flooded in. I saw dozens of these things online, and I said, who is behind this? What's going on with this? And I saw that Bethany's name was attached to it, to most of those things. So uh, this summer, I got to meet Bethany actually in Grand Rapids at Acton University and just thank her for the good work she's doing of bringing the rich theology of the Gospel Coalition and applying it to the breadth of life um, and, and producing such great articles. Uh, she, so, so when we talked in Grand Rapids, we talked about bringing her out for a first Wednesday. You know that this topic of work and vocation is really important to us. We do the all of life interviews. We do a number of different things. But um, I wanted you to be able to hear from another voice. So Bethany is going to come up tonight. Let me just tell you a little bit about her. She is the director of the Gospel Coalition's Every Square Inch, the director of vocational and career development at the King's College, and the founder of the Park Forum. She previously worked on Wall Street and on Capitol Hill. She received her JD from Columbia Law School and attends Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the church that Tim Keller is the pastor at and that we basically steal all our sermons from. So... Would you go ahead and give her a hand as she comes up? First, I want to thank your church. I love working for Gospel Coalition because we get to come in and support local efforts that y'all are doing. And after I met Jim, I actually liked his questions better um, on his vocational interviews that y'all do on Sunday. I'm, I grew up in the South, so you're going to hear a lot of y'all tonight. Um... And so I changed all of our vocational interviews for the Gospel Coalition to be the questions he asks. So thank you for letting me steal from you guys. And I actually stole everything I'm going to say tonight from my pastor too, so we also can go along with that. Um, in August 2013, the New York Times published an article called The Tick-Tock of the Death Clock. Yes, I'm going to talk about death tonight. The writer, who is in his mid-50s, talks about how he visited deathclock.com, the internet's quote-unquote friendly reminder that life is slipping away second by second. After he completed the short questionnaire, Death Clock's algorithm quickly did the math and concluded, your personal day of death is Wednesday, April 23, 2031. That was 18 years from the moment he did it, but they gave it to him in seconds, which was 563,037,308,86,5,4,3,2, and counting. And it just kept on going when you're on the website. He quickly emailed his doctor, who told him, all things being, quote unquote, all things being equal, I believe your estimated survival time would be around 72 to 75, good luck. And he writes in the New York Times, he writes, good luck? I spent a few moments processing the possible meanings behind good luck, none of them particularly appealing. Then sat there feeling sorry for myself, imagining the hourglass emptying. Then, not allowing myself to wallow one grain of sand any longer, 
I decided to quit my day job. Yes, just like that. I have been talking regularly with my therapist, which everyone in New York has a therapist, so that's normal, not abnormal. <laughs> not just about quitting, but about how to live a truly meaningful life. Now a new fear, the tick-tock of the death clock, squashed the pecuniary one, and the decision seemed like a no-brainer. Some of his friends were inspirations to him. His friend Peter, who was 52, he was also in his 50s, he was a documentarian. He took a sabbatical to write a play after his best friend died of a malignant brain tumor because he said, if not now, when? Another friend, his name was Tom, a 56-year-old photographer and writer who stepped down from a university post after watching two of his close friends die, said, I want to quit talking about doing my own work and just do my own work. So almost overnight, the death clock visitor, the guy who wrote the New York Times article, went from being an editor to being a full-time writer. And he ends the article with this conclusion. As I finished these pages, I see that my clock is down, to two down two million seconds from when I started. Call me crazy, but I have to say I love the tick-tock of the death clock. Without it, I might not be living. So when I think about a talk entitled Every Square Inch Toward a Vision of Work, Calling, and All of Life, for some reason I strangely think of our mortality. <laughs> Probably not what y'all came to hear, so I'm on stage, I get to pick it. Fun, fun. Everything living on this earth will die. But unlike the animals, plants, and every other living thing, we suffer from this really painful thing called the human condition which means that we are not just going to die, we are aware that we are going to die. This is a huge problem for all of us. Um, so tonight, when, I, when we, we think about this, I want to think about this under three heading topics. The problem of death, the death of death, and the opportunity of death. It just gets from bad to worse, pretty much. First, the problem of death. Death presents a real problem for us. The writer of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament, um, arguably one of the most successful biblical writers that we know of, had built houses, he built vineyards, reservoirs, parks, gardens, he bought slaves, herds, flocks, silver, gold, and he looks over everything he's, he's built with his hands, all the work he's done, and this is his conclusion. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I hated life because the work that I did under the sun was meaningless. Thirty-five times in this short book, he uses the word that's translated as meaningless or vain. It's not a long book. And he says that everything in this life, from work, pleasure, popularity, public opinion, Youth, vigor, good things, meaningless, vain. It doesn't matter whether we're wealthy or poor. He, look, he goes through that. It doesn't matter if you're happy or sad. It doesn't matter if you're successful or lazy. He even, like you come to church and you think, well, at least he's going to say like wisdom. Nope, he says it doesn't matter if you're wise or you're foolish. Everyone dies. It doesn't matter. Why even gain wisdom? And he says we all will suffer the same fate. Death will come knocking at our door. So let's eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. I told you it's not getting better. <laughs> now, Christians don't like to think about this for too long. We want to skip this first point, the problem of death, and just go straight to the death of death, the second point. 
Um, but I want to spend a little more time here, even than I already have, because death is a real, real problem, especially when it comes to our work, and especially in this age of practical secularism where there is no transcendent meaning in the world apart from that which I create. In this world where there is no meaning beyond ourselves, we live in a world that's just the world, just the physical realm of the world, nothing beyond, death renders our work meaningless, futile, and pointless. It's like rearranging, you've probably heard the phrase, rearranging the deck chairs and the Titanic. We spend hours or years or decades doing work that will be forgotten and laid waste. History marches on and our work is swept away with it. In the late 19th century, for example, one man spent his whole life creating a Bible concordance. I don't know if you guys know what those are. They are basically you go through and you figure out where every single word appears in the Bible, and then you have an entirely separate book that you can say, oh, where does, of course, you would be, where's death occur? And you would look up death, and it would have all of the list. I can now do that on a Bible app in 10 minutes. Life, meaning, like his work, meaningless. I went to Columbia Law School. We had stairs in our law school that were called the Scadden Stairs. There's a law firm in New York called Scadden. It's a top law firm. There was a, in, our, in our library, there was the Cravath Reading Room. Cravath is also a very good law firm. It's named after an assumingly successful man. But even the fact that I'm saying assumingly tells you something, we did nothing in law school other than make fun of the fact that there were stairs named after someone. I have no idea what Scadden did. He was, I'm sure, very important. He had no idea what um, Cravath did, other than the fact that a reading room, a stairs are named after him, and, uh, and there's a law firm named after him. And these were prominent alumni that I'm sure were very wealthy to pay for these things. Far wealthier than me. Um, our work, we are like drops of water in a huge sea. We'll swim on. I often tell my friends, I'm like, I'm not like Moses when I think about calling. I'm probably like the unnamed Israelites that were like, where's the manna? And I gathered too much on Saturday and like it rotted. <laughs> and so this actually wouldn't be a huge problem for us if we didn't care about doing significant things. But this is actually the biggest problem. We actually care about doing significant things. We care about doing meaningful work. We want to be remembered. We want to be immortal. And this actually is a massive problem for us that, like, you hear me saying, your work, your life, it is, there's no, under the sun, it's meaningless. This is really problematic. And Ecclesiastes actually hints at this, and he says, God has set eternity on the hearts of men. And if you read in Job, who's suffered significant death in his family, he actually says, in chapter 14, he says, if man dies, can he live again? And so it's almost like a mock to think, oh, okay, now my life is meaningless, is what Ecclesiastes says, and yet I want it to not be. And God has given me this desire to not be. How can this be so frustrating? So what ends up happening is I, I, there's kind of two responses that um, modern people, uh, modern people make. The one is they, they decide to befriend death. So they talk about it, it's, it's, not, it's just a transition from something to nothing, um, as if it were a dreamless state, it's just nothingness. We don't need to fear it, they say, because it is as natural as life itself. Who's heard that description of death? I mean, very, it's, it kind of comes from the Eastern way of thinking. This view of death, though, I would argue is irrational, and it's not true to our human longings. 
20th century poet Dylan Thomas, you might know his, um, his poem where he says, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And if you've ever had friends who have died, or I've had friends, I'm not very old, but I've had friends who, um, one of my best friends lost their three-month-old baby two years ago. And there is this rage against, why take this child? There's a, and Dylan Thomas is right, it is not a natural thing. There is a reason why we hate it, and it is an enemy. This is not something to befriend. This is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, and I've had many friends actually have died, um, unfortunately. Maybe that's why I'm obsessed with death a little bit. Those who recognize that death is not something to befriend, you actually don't have to hate it. You can actually just deny it. So in 1974, Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. It is a very fascinating and disturbing book. Um, you might want to have your Bible right along with you as you read it. Um, he said that all of culture, the arts, business, literature, just think of your industry in your head right now, even religion, is a t pure fiction that we invent to make ourselves immortal. Through these, he said, he argues, we create symbols to make our impact extend beyond our moment in time. And to get beyond this, he says, we ought to practice dying so that we can abide in the face of terror. But this last advice is actually him saying nothing but to befriend death, which brings us back to the first point and how frustrating that is. Now, where his argument fails and this is a pretty significant failure, is that he doesn't address Christianity and Christianity's argument that Jesus came in a moment, of, he was more than a symbol. He came in a moment of history. He came in a, as, to witnesses, key witnesses, and, um, and you have to deal with that reality. And so finally I'm beyond the first point, the problem of death, to the death of death. The gospel is the life death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of implications for the gospel um, for how to live, and we'll get to some of them in the last point. But for now, I just want to focus on the death of death in the death of Christ, which is actually a title of a John Owen book that, side note, is really hard to read. But the, the forward to it by J.I. Packer is worth the price of the book. Um, Apart from the emphasis on meaninglessness and vanity in Ecclesiastes, there is another phrase that is often repeated, and you heard me say it, I just didn't emphasize it, you may have picked up on it, but it's under the sun. What if, the question begs, there is something more? What if there is life beyond under the sun? Can, like, can our life today and our work actually have meaning? And that's really the deep question. Throughout the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we meet a very curious man named Jesus. He doesn't merely say wise things and sometimes offensive things, things that pierce our heart and soul. He also has a curious power over the, the physical world. He heals wounds, sometimes wounds that have been around for many years, like leprosy or chronic bleeding. And also there are two shocking accounts of him raising people from the dead and bringing them back to life. And in one account, in one instance, there's a 12-year-old girl, and she's died, and he goes to her, and he says to the people around, this child is not dead, she's sleeping. Everyone laughs at him. They know she's dead. There's no question. And Jean says, sends them outside of the room, and he takes the young woman's hand and says, 
Talithakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. My pastor, Tim Keller, just preached, on, preached a portion of this, um, this story this past Sunday, two days ago, and he actually rendered that phrase, sweetie, it's time to get up, like a parent would say to a child in the morning to wake up to send to school, and she rises. Who is this man that even our greatest enemy, death, comes to nothing by his voice? Who is this man? And even this story is nothing compared to the gospel. After all, the little girl and the other person who Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus, still end up dying one day. It's not like they're living in downtown Phoenix, knocking on the door and being like, hey, can I get some bandages to round up my wounds? They're, they're dead. They died eventually, even though they were raised to life. The historical reality of death and the resurrection of Jesus is a thing of another order. It cannot be denied because there were eyewitnesses, hundreds of them. People who doubted, touched him, and believed. And he rose with a new body, a body that was redeemed in such a way that even people who believed in a resurrection that would come at the end of the age, they believed that people would be resurrected, all of us, no one believed in a resurrection in the middle of history, that a new body would come in the middle of history and it would be of a new order, and he would almost be unrecognizable to certain people, but definitely recognizable even that he would have um, holes in his hands. This was, in, this was not what people expected. To me, this is a game changer. Whenever I think, and I do think this at times, I am not sure about how this gospel-centered stuff is really true or really matters. I doubt, I question. I always go back, what is the historical reality of Jesus Christ dying and rising. Things that we have eyewitness testimony about. That has to be reckoned with. It is not a symbol like Ernest Becker would like us to believe. It's not. It's not our self-creation so that we can feel immortal. It happened in time, and it happened in full view of people to see. For those who know God and are known by him, death remains an enemy. He is not to be befriended. But he is a defeated enemy. It has lost its sting, that is, it cannot take away our significance or our life eternal. To the church in Corinth, Paul writes, and I love this because it's so poetic, it says, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, it almost sounds like something C.S. Lewis would write, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So when we were mocked for caring about significance, death is mocked by Paul you're mocked. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus became a person in the flesh so that in his death he might deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I love this. The British poet Tim Keller quotes this all the time, and I, I, I actually thought it was a different George. I thought it was George MacDonald, but it's not. It's George Perbert. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. Or, as Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is raised. Today he sits at the right hand of the Father. Physical matter is not an illusion. There is a future glory that is material. This has huge implications because it is a whole new way of being. A moral courage, a solidity, a guilt-free freedom, an inner power, and a hope a solid, realistic hope. What we do today matters. 
not merely because it is a way to love one another and bear his image, as we heard about the assumptions, but also because it is a part of our future glory. Which brings me to my third point, the opportunity of death. The death of death in the death of Christ, which takes away the problem of death, has loads of implication and opportunities for my life, or our lives. I'm just going to talk about three. First, it means we have a restful urgency. Yes, we are called to run the race to win and not to waste our lives and to ask the same questions the writer in the death, the tick-tock of the death clock asked. But in the end, Christ has done the work. He has, defeated, he has defeated death. In his grace and by his mercy, we get to live out that reality in joy, not anxiety or worry. We don't need to work to gain satisfaction, recognition, or contribution, or to overcome the epitaph that will sweep over our life, all of our lives and our work on our death tomb and says, here lies Bethany Jenkins, and that's it. We don't have to work about that. Because here I do not lie. I lie with Christ in glory alive. We don't need to strive or gain approval for his delight because seeing the cross and the empty tomb and the communion table that says, this is my body broken for you, reminds us that the work has been done. We work for the sheer joy of knowing that we have him, not to earn him. As Zephaniah says, and I love this, it says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Second implication, it means that we can live out a multiformity or multiplicity of activities. I don't know about you guys, but I was younger. I grew up in a, my parents were our first generation Christians. So I grew up in the church in a pretty different tradition than I'm in now. But I used to read 1 Corinthians 15, which tells us that because he has been raised, our labor is not in vain, as meaning that since I was immortal with him, that I was going to have to give an account of my labor. I thought it was just scary news, like, great, um, now that you're going to live forever, now you just kind of have to give more accountability to what you've been done, and I was already a terrible person at the time, and still I am now in a lot of ways. Um, I was like, this is actually not good news that I'm immortal. This is not good news at all. Um, but that's actually not what Paul is saying in this context, what he's saying is that in some significant way, our work here will carry into the age to come, just like the scars that Jesus that remain on his hands when he rose. Somehow our work, and I don't know how fully, will manifest itself in a new city full of life and culture, not just a restored garden. My pastor likes to tell the story, to, make, to illustrate this point, he likes to tell the story of Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. I don't know if y'all have read that short story, have heard of that short story, but it's about Niggle is like a person who kind of like niggles away a perfectionist drawing. And the story is Tolkien as he's trying to write The Lord of the Rings and he's getting very frustrated because he's not getting done. And I don't know how much y'all know about the background of him writing it, but he would have to like write down whole biographies of characters that are mentioned one time and created a whole language of it. So he's very much a perfectionist and struggled very much with this issue of his character. And so as he's working on this, he actually takes a step back and he writes this leaf by Niggle. And it's a story about a, a guy named Niggle who's an artist, and he has this picture of a, of a tree he wants to draw. And in it, and at the time uh, he's doing it, in it, he's, he's, he's only able to draw the one leaf because he's so particular about that one leaf, and it just takes him a long time. 
and he's distracted. Friends call him, and he has to go serve people, and then he dies, and he goes to heaven in the short story, and in heaven, he sees that beautiful tree full of glory, not just the little leaf, and Tolkien's point is somehow all of your work Healthcare, medicine, law, justice, proximate justice. It's also frustrating sometimes. I wrote an article for Gospel Coalition about a, a capital punishment case I worked on where um, I was a, stu- a law student, so I had to sit with the victim's families. And um, the, the guy had done two, he was a capital case, so the guy, the defendant had killed two people. And I sat next to the families, the two families that he had killed. And uh, the, the sister got up and went to the bathroom, and I went to go look for her. And I found her in the bathroom crying, and she was saying to me, I, I know that judge, he could put him in jail, he can even get the death penalty, but to be honest, he, nobody can bring my brother back to life, and that's the justice I really want. And I couldn't give her everything because I was an officer of the court at the time, but I wanted to say, there is a judge who can bring your brother back to life. There is a final justice that will come. We can only point to glimpses of that glory with our work now, but it will be a part of that. And I love that vision that, Tim, that my pastor has really changed a lot of the dynamics in talking about that. So anyway, the point is, is go out into all these places because in my mind when I picture heaven, and maybe this is not right, maybe I shouldn't say it's not right, maybe I should How many of y'all have seen Frozen or Beauty and the Beast? Okay. In my head, that's how I picture heaven. You know, when they're all dancing in the streets and you've got, they're all happy and you've got all these, some people are baking bread and they're singing and you're like, that, that's commerce. That's, that's happiness. There's so much joy and like, it's just so, they're, and you've got Elsa, you know, thrones like, oh, there's, you know, ice skating all the time all of a sudden. Um, but that to me is how I picture it. And when I think about like a picture of you guys going out into Phoenix, doing all of these things, yes, it's broken. Yes, we're going to get frustrated. But oh my goodness, when you think about, Isaiah talks about this, Revelation talks about this. This is not going to be a place, I grew up thinking like, what is heaven going to be like? It's going to be kind of boring, right? But it's actually like, if you look at Isaiah 60, if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, it talks about things like commerce, and the ships of Tarshish coming in. What are these things doing? Cedars of Lebanon. Where is this coming from? And it's this beautiful picture of abundance and beauty and glory and everything. Unlike now, it's all pointed to Christ's glory. And so there is this beautiful way that the church will come together. And I don't have a full picture of it. I think we get glimpses. We get glimpses in the scriptures. And we get glimpses in our real life, too. New York is a great city. are a great place to see this. Because I honestly feel like people are like, sing, like sometimes singing. On, sometimes they're actually singing on the streets because they're maybe a little bit mentally um, challenged. But maybe they're not mentally challenged. I am because I don't see it. Um, so the last thing, the final thing is it, what I think this resurrection means also is that we, in the death of death, is that we now can connect our primary calling to know God and our secondary calling to serve others through our work on a daily basis. And here's what I mean by that. One tradition of the church is baptism. We do infant baptism. I'm a Presbyterian. I grew up Southern Baptist, so we do a believer baptism. I don't want to get into that discussion. Regardless, either way, it, is the, it symbolizes the dying to self and the being raised to walk in newness, in newness of life. It shows that we're not merely called to die once, the physical, or to die twice, the spiritual but we're called to die to ourselves every day. Paul tells the Romans, mortify the deeds of the body. 
As we think about these large callings over our lives, what I just mentioned, all of these medicine, healthcare, whatever, um, we can find a real miss if we don't connect the big picture to daily faithfulness of seeking God's face. It does me no good to discover an affinity for writing if, if I use writing and my gifts to make a name for myself. Although God usually calls us along the lines of our giftedness, he doesn't do it for selfishness. He does it for service and stewardship. Interestingly, I called my mom before this talk. You know, my parents are closer to actual death than I am. And um, I got them on speakerphone. Um, and I said, you know, I'm going to give this talk on death. What would you, when you think about, as you're thinking about that, it was very awkward to say it because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to think about their death. I'm sure they don't want to think about their death. But people are. We all are. And my mom actually said something very interesting. She said, you know, Bethany, um, you know what hap- what's happening to me as I get older is I'm kind of sick of our church being about the seniors having fellowship together. I really want to go do stuff for other people, and I want to serve people more, and I, wanna, I want our church to be a part of the prison fellowship. And she started saying all of these things that was basically what I wanted to say, which was, we don't exist, Redeemer's tagline is we're not a church for ourselves, but a church for others. And I hate, I don't, uh, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> I love my church. There are parts of the service I don't love, but every time I go, I go, this is not a church for me. It's a church for others. And there's so many reasons, there's so many things behind Redeemer's service that are totally targeted to other people, that are not targeted to people who already believe. And I love that about my church. And I love that that's a part of the DNA and that um, my mom is saying this as she's realizing it. And so I think that we, when we connect this primary calling to know God and the secondary calling to serve others and we bring them together, we actually see why Jesus, when he, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then he said this curious thing. He said, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's this thing when they bring them together that's actually like you find out your vocation and how you can love others because that's what vocation is. It's actually working to serve others in community. And you discover God in community. These, are the, the, these go hand in hand. So I'll just close real quick. The tick-tock of the death clock, and this is how I'm bringing it back, presents a real terror to us that if we confront it, with honesty. It's a mockery to everything we do and everything we are. Unless the death of death is true. Unless immortality is possible. Unless Jesus did rise again in the flesh, in history. And since he did, we can hope again. We can approach work with a restful urgency, seeking to work in multiple places to bear his image, and dying every day in glory to God and in service to others. For death is no longer a terror to us. The gospel has made it a gardener. So, so we're going to go ahead and take a moment now to um, discuss around our tables uh, anything that stuck out to you that you heard. Uh, maybe even, here's a question for you. What, what's a characteristic of, of someone who 
who has a restful urgency? What, is the, what, what are the characteristics of that person in their work? So go ahead and discuss that around your tables. We'll have the panel come up in just a moment, and then you'll be able to text in questions. Before you turn, the instructions for the text in questions will be on the screen. Go ahead and bring your discussion to a close. So as we, <clears throat> as we go ahead and get started, uh, I, I want to introduce you to the panel. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the panel in just a second. Um, today it's going to kind of be interesting because Katie is usually the moderator, but she's going to kind of be part moderator, part panelist, and I'm also going to be part moderator, part panelist. So we're innovating the moderation world right here. So everything in moderation, right? That's a dad joke. I get away with it. <laughs> Um, thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, before we go ahead and get started with introducing the panel, Katie, would you go ahead and just give us instructions for text and questions? Yes. It always seems so confusing, but we get so many questions. You guys are really, really great at this. So here's what you do. To the number up on the screen, text all of life to 411247. Reply Y to confirm, so it's going to send a message to you, you press Y to confirm, and then you send your question, which you still have to write again, all of life, and then your question. So all of life, reply Y to confirm, and then you send your question with all of life included. Okay, all you uh, graduate students should be able to <laughs> understand that. Uh, but send in those questions. Uh, while the, the questions are populating, I'm going to go ahead and introduce the panel and go ahead and ask a question to each person as, as we introduce them. Um, actually, I'll, I'll go through real quick. I'm not even going to let you guys introduce yourselves. All right. Um, Oye Waddell, you'll see him. Well, Katie, she's here every, every time, but I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to go ahead and she's introduce She's a woman. Katie. She shouldn't speak anyway in church. No, no. no. <laughs> All right. See? I love the extra support this New time. New York. Hey, how'd the Giants do this year? <laughs> All right. Uh, so we'll go ahead and start uh, with Katie. Uh, Katie is one of the most qualified people I know in the world to be doing a ton of really important things, and she has the tragic assignment of being uh, the administrative assistant to Ricardo and I, and uh, she's, she's a mom to two kids. She's uh, married to Ben. Ben Parrish, where you at? He's a, he's a big guy on the, the, the first Wednesday team here. Um, she worked at the Mayo Clinic before, uh, raised a bunch of money, met with a bunch of rich people. Um, she's, and, and, she's, and she is very sharp. Um, Oye Waddell, he was formerly a resident at Redemption Tempe, but uh, is the, what are we calling you? You're the executive director of Hustle Phoenix, executive director of Hustle Phoenix, one of my favorite nonprofits in the world that raises up urban entrepreneurs. He's also a pastor at New City. Um, Eric Averill, um, uh, one of the guys who I think has thought through faith and work and vocation in such a sharp way, uh, specifically pertaining to his field. And tell me if I'm, if I'm getting it right here. You're essentially a financial advisor to athletes. Is that correct? Yeah, that works. That works. Yeah, that works. Good. Um, Bethany, you know, you know me. And you know Mark. Uh, Mark Dakine is, again, one of my favorite people. 
all, all people are my favorite people. But, but um, Mark is especially one of my favorite people because he is a guy in, who is thinking through vocation in a robust way. Um, and I wanted to bring him up here because he has actually started a, a, a smoothie company called Blend. Is that right? Yep. Um, and that, that's delivering to businesses. And I brought him up here because a lot of times when we do these faith and work things, we bring people who are kind of at the end of the process, who have reached the success that they were looking for, and we look at them and say, good job, how do we become like you? But I wanted to bring someone up here who's starting out. He, how, how long have you been at it? About eight months. About eight months. So I wanted to bring someone who's thinking about it in a really rich way, but also is in the midst of the process that we can ask questions to as well. So he still feels all the fears of the risks that he's taking and those sorts of things. So this is the panel. My first question is for Oye. O Oye is, is one of my really good friends, and I like to give him a hard time about one thing in particular. Oye has more education than any human should have. <laughs> he, he seriously has degrees from like eight of the Pac-12 schools. Uh, whichever, whichever team is like leading the division, he goes and gets a degree from, from them. So, um, Oye, I want to ask a question to you about education and preparation. So a lot of people in here have uh, a vision of what they would really like to be doing. They're not currently doing that. Um, what steps would you recommend for them to, to get moving in that direction? Education, and what's the second one again? Preparation. Preparation. Yeah, so get moving in education and preparation. I would say, want to have a vision of where you want to go. And, and I, and I, I went to, a, I did a lot of school, not because I wanted to, it's because of the things that I wanted to do and accomplish, I would say, okay, I need these degrees to actually get my foot in the door, essentially. And so if I want to make impact, I need to have these letters so that people can say, hey, you know what you're talking about, and we, want, and we respect what you're talking about, and so we'll give you the opportunity to work in the field. And so I would say if you're in, if you're in school now or you're preparing to go to school and you're preparing for a career, I would say do not quit, first of all, because I think a lot of times – when we look at education, people say, ah, it's not worth it now. And you have all these things that are written, like, is education really worth it? And I would say, yes, it is. Um, because in preparation, uh, you need to figure out, listen, what do I need to do um, to get to where I want to be? And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And so pursue education vigorously um, because I think that's the way that you get your foot in the door to do the things that you want to do and accomplishing the goals and defeating death. <laughs> as uh, Bethany would say, so. And something I would commend about Oye that really is an example for our day is, I, I've been friends with Oye since long before Hustle Phoenix was a thing, and seeing him dream about it and seeing him work hard at it. And there's a mentality that we often have in, in our day that says that the job that we love the most, somebody's one day gonna send us an email, maybe a Nigerian prince or something, and say, if you give us your bank account, I'll send you the perfect job, and it's just gonna drop out of the sky. But a lot of times, it's a very difficult process to get there because you have a vision of how you wanna glorify God and to love your neighbor through your work, but it's not easy. So Mark, tell us, tell us what it's like for you being in the, the midst of that, that, that process. 
Yeah, um, in terms of um, loving our neighbor, you know, there's a lot of decisions we make um, that we have to think through. So one of the things that um, I've been talking to Jim about a lot lately is intentionality. So um, with every business decision, you kind of need to boil things back down to the why. Like, why are we selling this product? Um, what implications does it have? Um, does it reflect the gospel? Is it loving our neighbor? And it's so hard to do. It's really difficult to actually do uh, in practice when you, um, when you think about it because there's, so um, there's so much temptation. There's, it's so much easier to do, uh, to just kind of float and drift and do whatever works and makes money. But um, the challenge is kind of figuring out why and making sure you're attacking it with, uh, with some intentionality. So just really quickly, give us an example of a temptation that you would have specifically with smoothies <laughs> that, that, that you refrain from doing as an act of love for your neighbor? Sure, so um, one of the things we do is we, we source one of our smoothies with uh, local organic kale. Um, it's really easy to just to get um, ingredients from you know, the big stores where um, things are just a lot cheaper um, but since we're actually feeding people, we're, we're providing sustenance to people, it's, it's really important that they're getting uh, good quality nutrients, and it's a way to love our neighbor much better than, um, than it would be if we were just to get like this you know, genetically modified, uh, nutrient deficient uh, product that people perceive as healthy. <laughs> So why don't we go ahead and uh, go to the questions on the screen. All right. Can we get the first question? All right. This one's for you, Jim. Jim, what did you mean earlier by having employment that doesn't bless the world? Yeah. No, I love this question. So here's the thing. We tend to view our work through the lens of status. It's good work if it's, if you, it's paid well and you have a good title. It's bad work if you don't have a good title and you don't get paid well. But really the question is at the end of the day, um, how is this benefiting my neighbor? How is this cultivating blessing and, and serving um, another? So the, the rich kind of work that we're talking about, that we were intended for as human beings, in the world it may have status and it may not have status. Um, I've been thinking about this illustration quite a bit lately that a janitor... Think about it. When we talk about God as a worker, the, what words do we use? We use God's an artist. He's an architect. He's, a, he's an author. He's what else? What, what other things do we, He's the, the owner and, and the manager of all things. But what if I told you God was a janitor? Would that feel kind of blasphemous? But if you really think about it, God in his work, he's sustaining and maintaining things every single day. And in many ways, God's a maintenance man of the world. But the reason why that doesn't sit well with us is because we are shaped more by what the world says is the status versus this biblical story right here. And if we are shaped by the biblical story, then we can see it's not about status, but it is about cultivating God's good creation and loving our neighbor. So the janitor is essentially taking a place that belongs to God and stewarding it and cleaning it and caring for it well. And at the same time, is like I, I've, I've mentioned this before, 
is essentially reimagine it as microbiological spiritual warfare, killing bacteria that would harm other image bearers of God. So uh, that right there is good work. But you might also be a CEO of a title loan company that perpetuates poverty with really high interest rates and takes advantage of, of the poor. Now, you have status in the world and you have money in the world, but I don't know that that's, that that's biblical work that will endure into the new heavens and new earth. So, next Thanks, question. Thanks, Jim. All right. How do I know if my job is a part of my calling? Let's go ahead with Eric. How do I know if my job is a part of my calling? Um, so I think here we've got to really work at defining calling. Um, and I think this is where we start with uh, who, we're, who we're accountable to or kind of who we're responsible to with our life. And when I'm talking about that is... Um, the main difference is Bethany shared this morning in another group that I was a part of is uh, a lot of times, uh, unfortunately, we start to believe that that we're not accountable to to God or to our biblical mandate. And then we kind of self-create our lives, right, that we're our own authors uh, of our reality. Um, so I think the first question you've got to ask before before your calling is, um, do I believe that I can just self-create anything that I want, or am I fulfilling uh, my biblical mandate as a follower of Jesus Christ? And why that plays out within my calling is, first and foremost, is what am I doing? Is it serving God, and is it serving other people? So I think that's really where you, you first have to start with, um, you know, is my job part of my calling? is is it fulfilling the biblical mandate not necessarily only hey this is what i want to do from an emotional passion feel standpoint what would you say to that bethany um i love um john calvin wrote this old stuff called the institutes and he opens it up and he says that um that we know how does he say it it's like we we have to know two things. We have to know who we are, and we have to know who God is. And um, I love it because he, his point, I, I've heard that statement a lot, like, oh, know who you are by knowing who God is. And I, I thought it was really, I interpreted it through my 21st century kind of, like, secu like expressive individualism, like, lens, where I was like, oh, that's about me and psychology. And it wasn't, it's actually not that at all. What he means is know yourself to know that you are not God, and know God so that you, um, so that you know, uh, I'm going to ruin this actually now. This is great. It wasn't a part of my talk, so I wasn't prepared for this. Um, but basically know God so that you know you're not him and know yourself so that you, like, so that you know you're, basically the whole point is like, I'm not God. So I know him and then I know myself. And so I think that calling is really about two things, identity and belonging, so it's whose we are and who we are more than it is about what I'm doing. And so I have students. I also do vocational counseling at the King's College. And I think, I can't remember. It's been a long day, and I'm on a different time zone still. Um, but I think I said this this morning. But I'll have a student. I had a student come to me recently, and they said, I want to be a writer. 
And I kind of pulled back and I said, she's 18. And I was like, you actually don't know that a writer is a job. It, does, it sounds less like a calling and more like a job to me. And I said, because you, your calling might be that you love words. And words could be used in so many types of jobs. And so do you love to express yourself using words? You could be a copywriter for an advertising agency. You could be a person who makes words on billboards. You could be a person who explains, uh, this would be crazy boring to me, but if you're like a medical, you know those like, I don't know why I came, this jumped in my head, but it's like, here's a warning on everything you can think of with that particular <laughs> drug that's coming on the, the advertisement right now on your commercial. Um, but that person probably loves words and they're a good communicator. And those warnings are really important for people to be able to see an experience so they know they're not using the wrong things. Um, so I try to push back against students thinking about a particular job and more like what is, what are the things, what are the things that I enjoy doing? And it might manifest itself in a particular industry and role at a particular time, but we're always figuring out kind of what that job is. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Next question is, where does failure fit into calling? Ooh, I, it feels like a lot of pressure on whoever I direct this question to. <laughs> where does failure fit into calling? I have a really good answer to this. Okay. Go for it. And I just spoke, so I feel badly. And I really hope that she doesn't mind that I share this. So I had lunch today with someone. I think she was really encouraged by this. So I won't out you unless you stand up and say it's okay if you do. Um, I think that a lot of times people, so I said actually at the end of my talk that God calls us really often by our giftedness. But I actually think that's only half true. It didn't really fit in the talk, so I just left out the half, other half. So I'm glad I have an opportunity to say this now. I think he also calls us according to our hurts. So I know someone who is a portrait painter who um, never felt seen as a child because she had a, a crazy family life. And so now she paints to show people that, to show other people they're seen. But it comes from a hurt and it comes from a brokenness and it comes from what some might say a failure in life. And I, today I had lunch with someone who goes to this church. I'll try to be as anonymous as possible. Um, who told me about what she did, and she works in a particular uh, nonprofit that helps struggling, um, struggling people. And as we talked about her life, I discovered she actually comes from a very similar background to the people that she works with um, in, this, in this city. And I looked at her and I said, you know that um, that is how Jesus was. He didn't come to us as, he became incarnate as a human being that's, that's actually brokenness. He took on human flesh that is very weak and frail and, um, to redeem us. And so I said, you're doing that, actually. You, ha you come from brokenness, failure, a really hard family life growing up, and now you're turning around and you're giving that to people. And she just looked at me and she was like, thank you so much. Sometimes I forget that. So I think failure is actually a huge part of it. I have a friend who actually doesn't want to work with anybody who hasn't failed, like an one of my friends who's a business owner, because they don't get. Um, Oz Guinness one time said, I was watching a video, and he said that contrast is the mother of clarity. And I think that sometimes con the failure can bring under better understanding to the success because of the contrast of it. Thank you. That was really good. All right, 
Stress is a common factor in work. What are some ways that you manage stress in work as a Christian? Can, I, I would love to direct that to Eric, hoping that you have an answer for that, because I know that you have very intense seasons with your work. So would you tell us about some of those intense seasons and then how you deal with that? Yeah, so I think just to show you a little background of what he's talking about in 10 seasons is, um, as he shared, the majority of all of our clients are professional athletes. So uh, I spent a lot of time on the road uh, going into obviously different cities to see them. And uh, it causes, you know, a lot of different stress. And I'm sure my wife doesn't like the fact that I'm gone 10 days at a time. Uh, I spent probably like 120 days on the road last year. So, um, it's a lot of stress there. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. Uh, we're responsible. We manage millions of dollars for people. Um, and if anybody pays attention to the economy or, or the stock market over the last couple of years, there's a lot of um, volatility going on. And, and that's people's hard-earned money, and, and it's uh, affecting the way that they live. So um, we carry, carry a lot of that stress. And really, I think the, the way... Um, that as believers that that we can find rest into it and contentment is um, ultimately I'm only responsible um, to be a good steward with the gifts that God's given me and at the end of the day I think it's also uh, having the humility to admit that I'm not in control um, over a lot of it so it's finding those spiritual rhythms I know on Sundays over the last month we've talked here at redemption of spiritual rhythms um, so I think it's it's implementing those into my life that um, knowing who I am in Christ and, and knowing the implications of that. So some very practical um, things for whoever, I guess, ask this question is, um, you know, small things. I try and start, you know, every, every morning in prayer, small things for me before I go into meetings, kind of same thing, prayer. Uh, I'm big on right after lunch, A, because I'm just tired and you want to take a nap, I always take like a little 15-minute walk um, around my office and, and just pray through those things. So um, I think another big thing with just the stress here is um, God's a God of rest, and, and I think we talked a lot about that on Sunday, of making sure that uh, you just don't buy into the secular mentality of the grind that you have to work 80 hours um i think that's one thing that we do need to push back on and say is is like what's a biblical way to work and that doesn't equate to just kill myself and add stress so i think just implementing seasons of rest is huge so um that's really great i was just telling jim today about how i love that god's sovereign too and, and how you can trust and rely in him too our next question, what would you say is the mindset that the average person has toward work, and what redeemed mindset should we seek to cultivate? Let me read that one more time. What would you say is the mindset that the average person has toward work, and what redeemed mindset should we seek to cultivate? Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of times we, we say, thank God it's Friday, but I think we need to say, thank God it's Monday, yeah. right? Um, so TGM, I guess, right? <laughs> Change that, get a tattoo, no. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess what I'm thinking about is when you think about work, and I, when I think about it, I think what, what would happen if we just stopped working, right? 
And Bethany talked about love God, love your neighbor. Well, we'd be a very uncivilized society, right? Just think about if a stay-at-home mom stopped feeding her kids, right? Or if you're a teacher, you just stop teaching. You walk out the classroom and you you just know what kids are going to do. Or if the street sweeper stops sweeping the streets or the janitor stops cleaning the buildings, we'll be in a a very uncivilized society. And so I think understanding that, listen, I am co-creating with God when I go to work on Monday. And so I can thank God, hey, it's Monday. And I get an opportunity to co-create and work um, because this is, uh, God loves work and he is a worker. And so I think, yeah, just changing our mindset to TGM. Remember that, get a tattoo, have a great. (laughs) T-G-I-M, I I like that. I am a parent and homemaker. I'm often asked what else I want to do when the kids get older. Is what I'm doing now not enough? Um, I want you to answer that question, but I want to answer, I want to ask you a question before that. All right? Um, Because I think it sets up this one well. Katie is way more qualified uh, than some of the work that she does. She's extremely smart. Anything good that's kind of come from me is probably because she like made it work well. Um, But right now, the season in life is that the job that's open for you um, and that, that pays the bills and stuff is an administrative job. How do you manage how do, you, how do you deal with that? You are doing work that probably isn't the work that you're best at. You have other gifts. Um, and it's probably not the stuff you love the most, but it's the stuff for the time now. Tell us a little bit about how you sort through all that. I had told Jim once before that I don't think I'm overly overeducated for my job. It's just not exactly my, my skill set. But so when I first took this job, it was a volunteer position just to help at the church. And then it kind of became some extra money and me and my husband really needed it because I had quit my big job. Um, So it was necessity. And now that I'm two years into this job, I can see why I'm here. And I, I often say too that I feel like a fellow or an intern and really I'm just here to suck up all the knowledge of the guys who work here. And my husband and I feel a real clear calling that God's been leading us on over the last couple of years, and it's just becoming more and more clear. And I can see how he has me here at this perfect time doing this job. And I never knew that's what I was getting myself into when I said I'd like help schedule some meetings and you know send some emails. And part of that's being in relationship with God and just having my eyes open to it and what he's doing and see what he's doing in my life. Um, I'm just really thankful for the opportunity to be here. That said, like Jesus, er, Jesus said, Jim said, <laughs> often confused. <laughs> it's, a, it's a season in my life. And um, I think of this question that is, is what I'm doing not enough. It's so important. And having young kids is so, it is such a season. And now that I'm in it, I can, I understand it. Um, it is so enough. There's so many pressures on people. I feel like if I was at home watching my kids, my one kid goes to preschool, well, somebody else would be teaching them the preschool stuff, and that's good too. But somebody has to teach them these things, and either it's going to be here, it's going to be somebody else. And either way, I think is good, whatever works for you and your family. But that has to be done. 
And so it's choosing who's going to do it, and either way is fine. Um, but I think it is enough, and I remember reading uh, Amy Sherman's Kingdom Calling book, and there was a woman in there who felt really called to work with her, her church had a partnership with a local school system, and she really wanted to be a part of it, but she was homeschooling her kids at the time. It was 18 years later, and now she's actively involved, she's part of the partnership, she has a great role. It took her 18 years to get to that spot, and I find such comfort in that, that God has his timing, he has his seasons, and what, you know, if I'm listening to him and I'm in relationship with him, we'll get there, and it may just be at a different time. Can I say something real quick? I'm actually working with an author right now who's doing a book proposal because I asked her to write a book on theology of housework because of this question. So whoever wrote this question, if you're a stay-at-home mom, I want you to go home and buy and read a book called Quotidian Mysteries, by Kathleen Norris. It talks about doing laundry. It talks about doing dishes. It talks about baking bread. Really practical things that t are daily. I mean, I hate making my bed because I'm just going to have to make it the next day. Like <laughs> daily stuff. And if God had that attitude with the sun, I'm just going to have to rise it the next morning. Like beautiful theology. She has a beautiful theology. It's wonderful. Second book recommendation, these are just uber practical. Second recommendation, uh, what I've been researching about women and work, and one of the things I read was a his, it's not a, it's a normal book, not a Christian book. It's called Just a Housewife, and it is the history of domesticity in America from the, from the uh, Industrial Revolution till now. And it's a fascinating look at how housewife, it used to be housewife, now it's stay-at-home mom, the orientation has start, turned from the husband to the children, and then it's a really interesting look at the work at home. Third thing, trying to make these quick, uh, I did a contest for Gospel Coalition Women's Conference last June. I asked, Kathy Keller and I did a dinner, I asked people to submit uh, short essays to three questions. What do you do every day? How do you feel about what you do every day, and when has your work been meaningful? Tons of women who start stay-at-home moms, housewives, wrote in, and I noticed a constant theme that was beautiful to me. And I, I have told this author who's working on it, you have, this has to be a chapter in your book. Um, this is the theme I noticed. I don't think society could work without housewives. And, and, I, and I don't say that. I, do, I am a working woman in New York City and have a law degree. I don't say that as like a, I'm just trying to give you something nice to hear. It's actually true. I think that we would be, I think we are, and I don't care, I'm actually fine with stay-at-home dads too. This is another, anyway. Um, stay-at-home parent work. Stay-at-home parent work. I, the picture I had as I was reading through these essays was that society is almost like bricks in a home, and the people who have flexible schedules are kind of the mortar between the bricks. My mom was a stay-at-home mom my whole life. You know who was the one going to jails that, I, that my dad couldn't go to because he was stuck at the office? You know who was the one taking meals to people who were in the hospital? Church, neighbors, however it happened. It was the people who had the flexible schedules that could actually love in ways that I can't even love now because I'm, I'm in an office. They make our communities work. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I have a friend who recently has been in the hospital for, or has had surgery four months ago. I haven't even been able to see her because of our crazy schedule. She's a good friend of mine. Um, last thing, this little promise is last thing. A pastor once told me a story um, that a seminary student went up to a seminary professor and said, I want to change the world, all this dynamic. 
And the professor said to this seminary student, you'll be, ch- you'll be lucky if you can change your kids. Hmm. And the point was, he's seen so many people who do this, like, I want to do this important work. I want to do this important work. And there's zero connection to what's happening at home. And so I think that, I think that's a really wise word that we don't really change. God changes people. We don't change people. He changes culture. We don't, we're all going to, we are going to die. Like this world will move on without me. Um, and to be able to just have an impact on just the tiny little people around you, loving them, dailiness, that's so much more worth it. So worth it. So it's beautiful what people do when they stay at home with their children. So. So you're saying sustaining the life of a little human being is kind of a big deal? Yes. Uh, Not many New Yorkers would say yes to that, I think. They would actually say, I won't say that either. Is this being recorded? Because I would say a lot of stuff at World Club I just wanted to uh, share a quote. Just as as we're thinking through that question, I think the the word that popped out to me was... uh, is it enough, right? And that's, that's definitely seems to be a lot of the, the commentary around uh, a mom or, a, or, you know, a housewife or something like that. But I think that's a, that's a challenge for a lot of other individuals too is, you know, is it okay to pursue what I do feel called to do if I'm not going to make a ton of money? I mean, I joke around or not really joke, but ask the question of my wife is what if, you know, what if our child comes to us one day and says, I want to, you know, pursue being a, an artist or something, then it doesn't have kind of the same lifestyle that I'm accustomed to is how do we respond to that? And I think a lot of that's within the church of we need to encourage people based on, on the value of what they're called to, not necessarily what society puts the, how much power and, and prestige and money. And I think of this Martin Luther King uh, Jr. quote that says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Amen. I want to end on that quote. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, it's 8 o'clock. We, we are done for now. Um, the folks on this stage will stick around, and we will, if you want to talk to us, we, we can answer some more questions. Um, the questions that weren't answered, I, I will actually be working through them on our blog um, at redemptionsaz.com. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, work through those questions so they will all get answered. Uh, just want to close with this, because I think this last thing that we talked about, all of us commented, and I think there's we're sensing a weight of the importance of this. So the last thing I want to say is this whole conversation about is parenting work doesn't just apply to moms. Like dads, we are working and fulfilling a part of our calling and responsibility in raising kids, and that's not just delegated to moms. Uh, The second thing is, and I want to close with this, so, mu- so much of the time, I hear people come up to me and say, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Well, I'm just a realtor. Well, I, I'm, I'm just a loan processor. We must get this word out of our vocabulary when we speak about vocation because you are an image-bearer of God reflecting the God who does work. So 
We're going to end on that. I'm going to go ahead and pray for our night. Actually, Mark, why don't you close us in prayer, and then we will be done. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight, God. We thank you for, um, for creating us in your image, Lord. Um, we thank you for the wisdom that was shared tonight um, and all the, the guidance with, with work, God. We ask that um, as we go out into our workplaces and our vocation, Lord, that um, we would do it in a way that honors you, Lord, and that we would remember just the value that, um, that we have as your workers, Lord, as, um, as your image bearers, God. Um, Father, just um, be with us tonight, and um, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.